Jessica Litwack is a playwright, performer, educator, puppet builder, and leader in the field of socially engaged theater. And in her blog, Litwack tells us she believes imagination is a mighty tool for change. It is a vision that starts from a seed of thought and grows into a tree of action. John Paul Lederach, a conflict transformation scholar, described the moral imagination as the capacity to recognize possibilities by imagining what does not yet exist. One cannot make peace happen, for example, without first imagining it. So, in other words, she says, nothing can be successfully accomplished without vision. And vision comes from imagination. Imagination requires the capacity to imagine ourselves on the other side of change. Imagination demands a willingness to embrace complexity. Imagination wants a commitment to creative acts. And imagination involves an acceptance of risk. But, I ask myself, how do I inspire an imaginative process that does not overwhelm people? How do we access our imagination in manageable bites so we actually get from zero to action? And then I saw the tree. It was right outside my window. It used to be a very small shrub. It's grown into something beautiful and useful. A home for birds, a source of oxygen, a shade from hot sun, a shelter for squirrels. We begin change with a small seed of an imagined outcome. We plant the seed and it sprouts roots of creative visioning. As it grows, it becomes stronger and clearer. We begin to see what kind of tree this will become. The roots mature and extend into a trunk of brainstorming, allowing the idea to increase and swell. With care and attention, the branches of planning reach up from the trunk and leaves of action bud and flourish until the winning birds who are nesting in the tree take a victorious flight. I began to use this metaphor for change that I was able to translate for my students. She continues, the important thing to remember is that everything starts with a seed, nothing more, one small thing, a tiny beginning of a thought, an idea, a desire for change. Then we plant it and let it grow just the way it wants to. With watering and pruning and sunlight, we can encourage growth but we cannot fully determine the final outcome. Whatever the tree becomes, it will be an expression of the tiny seed we started with. It could never have become a graceful willow, a mighty oak, or a ruddy coastal pine without the seed of imagination that started it. Creativity is a word I use frequently, Litwak says, but it can be a trap. First of all, it is used so much that its meaning has been stretched thin. Secondly, it tends to stump people who don't identify as artists. So I ask myself, what is something everyone in the world has access to that does not necessitate a specific skill or a body of artistic knowledge? The answer came in one word, imagination. It might not come as a surprise that Litwack closes that blog post about imagination with lyrics from this song by John Lennon.
Litwack writes, You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. As we'll learn, imagination is a key in the story Jessica Litwack tells in her play titled The Moons of Jupiter. It is a play serendipitously discovered by a geoscientist from Tioga County in her native Scotland and championed now by the Women's Project of Hamilton Gibson Productions in Wellsboro. Litwack explains, The Moons of Jupiter explores the history of science, the future of planetary travel, and the courage and necessity of looking toward the unknown for solutions. Hamilton Gibson Productions Women's Project will present The Moons of Jupiter over the Earth Day weekend to bring awareness to issues related to climate change, especially the growing scarcity of fresh water in the world. Writer Lillis Mellon-Gignard is the director. Dr. Linda Kennedy of Mansfield University is the producer. And they paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk about the play and the project and how it came about. Dr. Kennedy. We'd had a meeting, the Women's Project, and Lilith had said, let's do something for Earth Day. And that's why I jumped in, because I'm a geoscience professor at Mansfield University. And I'm a relative newcomer to the Women's Project, so I'm, I'm not sure I would call myself a theater person. <laughs> but um, they've pulled me in to help out on the edges. But that's why I got involved. I was like, yeah, I can, I can do something with that one. I'm interested in that topic. So I went online. It was that simple. I did the old-fashioned thing. I'm old-fashioned, right? I went online and... You, you know, were jet-lagged because you had just gotten to Scotland to visit your mom. Right. And I found this play. It was written by an American lady. She did an art science lab with students in Colorado. And as far as we know, this was the only time it was performed. Right. So it hasn't been performed since. And I just loved the mixture. I started reading it and it had the scientists. And the, the writer of the play was adamant that those scientists be played by women. So we've got Galileo. We've got Darwin shows up in it. We've got Einstein, Newton, but they have to be played by women. And I saw that and mm-hmm. as a person rooted in the sciences, I was like, yay. <laughs> and then uh, the Greek mythology. She combines Greek mythology, Zeus and his daughters and a woman scientist. So, this, it, so it kind of rang all the bells for me. There were women, a woman scientist was the main character. There's the three goddesses, mm-hmm. you know, so there is a couple of men in this play, but it's very much dominated by women. And you had that mixture of mythology and science. And I just thought, oh, Lillis, you have to look at this. <laughs> and she was right. Uh, the author, Jessica Litwack, had actually written a small article about it that was posted in, I think it's Climate Change Theater. Anyway, something that obviously popped up on the Google search. And not only did she write about why she wrote this, give a little synopsis, but she included a couple excerpts. And so that was all we have, because usually when we find shows, we can look up a script. And we just had that. And Linda was like, I want to do this one. I'm like, I do too. She's like, I don't know how we find it. So we tracked down her agent. She goes all over. She spends a lot of time, it seems like, in Eastern Europe. She does socially aware theater. And of all sorts of, I think human rights is a big thing. But this was, of course, 
climate change. But she is very active. I mean, I would love to connect if she's listening. <laughs> and so you got the agent and then said, we'd like to do this. Mm -hmm. And how do we get a script? Is that mm -hmm. what happened? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we were able to get a review script. And then we read that. And Linda said, oh, is this too weird? And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, I loved it. But I was thinking about where we're located. And I was like, is this going to work? <laughs> and the timing was great because Hamilton Gibson had just upgraded or was in the process then. But we have finished the first phase of our upgrade of our tech, which with the Stephen Worthington Memorial Tech Fund. So we have a new light system and sound system. And we can do things we could never do before, which is one of the things when we read it, we were like, we can show it off. Now tell us about the lead character. Is she on a quest? What do we find when we meet her? She's an astrophysicist, and we meet her in a dive bar. It's her birthday. Her father's just died. She has him there in, an, in a can. And um, <laughs> she's been stood up by a, an online date with a graduate student. But her quest, because we're just about run out of usable water, usable, fresh drinking water, and is the moon of Jupiter Europa that has a lot of water under, mm -hmm. is it an icy surface? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, we know that's there, and she's working on a craft that can get a human up mm -hmm. there to what? Retrieve the water, colonize, this we don't, they don't really get, like there are all those options, but mostly it's let's get access to that water. There but, is water out there, can we do this? But she's hit a stumbling block in her efforts to make this thing work. And that's when the gods get involved. Ah. The goddesses are trying to help her. Well, and she has herself hit a stumbling block, mostly it seems in terms of motivation. Like, what's the point now? I'm lonely, the world's going to heck, you know, all this stuff. But what happens on Mount Olympus is Zeus comes in and he says, oh, the planet's just too messed up. We're pulling the plug earlier than we thought. And he surprises the goddesses and Hermes and and they're like trying to argue him into it. You know, there's a chance we've been watching this woman. She's the reason. She's the one we got to watch. There's still hope. It's like the story of Noah in my head. And he's like, no, no, no. We don't want to give anything away. But the goddesses and the tricksterism, they do all sorts of things to try and both convince Zeus. But at the same time, these are ways of like bringing back those scientists of trying to remotivate Hava, which is Hebrew for Eve. There's so much. We've got the Greek gods, but there's a lot of Judeo-Christian, mm -hmm. and they're not in competition. They don't cancel each other out. It's just really interesting <laughs> culturally. It's like in the way that science and mythology aren't in competition here. Tell us then, we have Galileo, we know, and Einstein, and Newton. Well, Newton and Einstein, different ways of conceiving of mm -hmm. the reality of the world. And that sounds very depressing at first when you say, what's well, a play about climate change and almost the end of the world? <laughs> But this is where the comedy and the humor comes in, because the scientists, the more recent scientists recognize the older scientists, but the more older scientists, of course, don't recognize the youngers. Right. Galileo knows nobody. And there's conversation between the four of them as they even discuss their own their own failings as humans when they were involved in their own research. Yeah, they get around to that. Newton's very stuck up. I mean, go figure, right? But he's, he tries to tell everybody what's wrong with everything. He's the father of the ideal science, and Einstein has to break it to him that he did, to his views, what <laughs> Newton did to Galileo. It's just very funny. And, and Darwin's just, he's just a little out there. He's a little touched and he's, looking at all yeah. the other things. But don't get him started on how people have spun the survival of the fittest stuff. Then he corrects the 
the agenda there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes there are scientists and goddesses on the stage at the same time. Yes. And, <laughs> and sometimes they know what's going on. Like certain people can see other people more than other people. And Hava's trying to figure out, you know, she thinks these are thirst delusions at first. Because one of the first things that happens is her grandmother, who she's only read about, who was also a woman scientist. I mean, her father is a scientist. So in a long line of scientists, but it came through the mother's line there, or her grandmother. And she, she comes back. The goddesses send her to talk to her and try and get her back on track. But she was involved with the research for the atom bomb when, when Hitler was coming in, and she was over there in Austria. So that's their, their history. You get little bits there. It's very much about women in science, too. Yes. That's kind of one of the reading between the lines and the opportunities and what might get in the way. Getting credit for what you actually did or you know, not getting credit for, for what you did. What drew you to geoscience? I just like getting filthy dirty. I mean, from day one, I actually studied originally geology and archaeology. And then I actually spent 20 years here in America working as an archaeologist. And then it wasn't until more recently, about 10 years ago, that I sort of swung back into the geosciences. And I'm actually doing something of a mishmash right now. On one hand, I I am still doing the geosciences, but I also teach an archaeology class as well. I'm a bit of a a mishmash. I really am. But you teach environmental issues. Yeah, I teach environmental issues. We teach climate change in a number. We touch on in a number of our classes. And then we have a full class that just teach, you know, just deals with climate change. And build with students who are concerned? Yeah, it's funny. The The students who are concerned tend to be very concerned. It's almost like there's the two extremes. There's not a lot in the middle. You know, that's interesting. They're either very concerned and almost very pessimistic about it, which upsets me. Yeah, it's bad, but, you know, there's answers. We just have to be willing to employ them and get involved and push for these answers. They're there. We know what to do. It's just getting it done. Uh, And then there's the other extreme that just shrug and it's too much and it's too big. Maybe I don't know, but mm, there seems to be the two extremes. And I don't find many, many students right there in the middle. Would you want your classes to come to see this? Oh, well, that's part of what we're doing. Part of what I'm interested or why I got involved was I have four of my female students, undergraduates, they're doing this extracurricular activity where we're not going to hit people over the head with science, right? They're out for a night out. They're coming to see the play. But we're going to put up information and provide them with a little piece of paper they can take home, especially about women, the impact of climate change on women and women scientists working in climate change because it's all part of the women's project. And we'll give them that to take home so if they become interested, there's information they can look up. But on the night, it will be more banner-like bullet points. But my students, three students or four students, will be there to answer questions, to talk to those who want to stop and, and have a chit-chat. And um, I see it as a, uh, an exercise in having these young women increase their public interaction. How do you speak science? How do you communicate science? to someone who hasn't taken these classes. And when they see things on the television, the types of things you see, that doesn't, it's not meaningful. When you hear about the temperature rising two degrees, people are like, what, what, so what? <laughs> so uh, I, I, that's how I pitched it to them. Would you like to do something extracurricular that's to do with communicating science? And, and yeah, these four were like, yeah, 
So they're going to help me dress up the entrance area where the people come in, can hang out for a little while before we let them into the theater. And Lilith, you're someone who's passionate about the outdoors. So this speaks to you. Absolutely. I've been, you know, a scholar and a writer in in environmental studies, more the humanity side of it. So I have the basic literacy of the ecological stuff. And it is very important to just connect people to what this means and to get people thinking, to, to kind of come to that edge where they're, okay, so what if? There's all these what ifs. And I think that's what art does in so many ways. And I was like, I don't know if we can find the type of play that I'd want to put in front of people, because even plays not about climate change, if you're going to go see a play that is beautiful and wonderfully done, but is so dark, I think of Schindler's List. It's a fabulous movie. I don't know that I could ever sit through it again. And so we did not want anything like that. And this is not like that. And in fact, there's, I call them the Greek chorus, but there's these 11 folks who represent sort of the masses. And in just two of the scenes, they come in and kind of give the audience a sense of what is going on in the world outside of this narrative of Hava and what's going on. And what are the advertisements? What's the reality? What happened first? This was, I think, written in 2016 when they put it on. We haven't changed any of that. And some people are going to go, oh, that's already happened. So that's one of the interesting things. They're sort of like the the voices of the masses that way. And everything else, you watch Hava go through her process. And everybody's trying to lift her up or figure out how do you work this? I mean, these four great scientists had these ideas, but they only went so far. And that's what they're realizing. And if, there's this great line that, of course, Jessica Litwak wrote for Einstein to say, which is talking to the guys about, we're not that great, basically. We're just like teenage boys, all full of ourselves. And he says, we're just men who have followed our ideas to publication. And if you are a woman academic, even if you're not in the sciences, you know exactly what she means there. And that's another one of those lines about men could follow their ideas to publication. And and women, not so much, especially back in the time period she's talking about. So... Part of the larger message is how do scientists and everyone else work together instead of being competition? And those scientists in a very funny way kind of model that and come around. But also, how do we just talk to each other without it being about other things? What ultimately do we have to come to? So in some ways, there's these cheesy little things like Beatles lyrics that come in and out of the chorus. And so there's these motifs. It's just so much fun for things like that. The very end has some lines from T.S. Eliot. If you don't know that those are Beatles songs and don't know that that's T.S. Eliot, it's not going to matter a bit. But it has something to do with this art science lab that they were bringing all these things together. So not just this current art, but some historical art and not just high art. It's just, it's like, what's all great about the earth? Like when Zeus comes around, he starts listing the things that are great and beetles and cheeseburgers are part of that. Is there music? Now we know <gasps> Einstein played a violin. What, what's going on musically? Well, we don't have a violin. Um, although it's funny you say that because that was clearly part of the original. They must have had an Einstein who played violin. There is those Beatles lyrics that are sort of, and then they fade behind some of the chorus stuff and come out again. So they're like chorus lines, except those are sung by different people. And then sometimes the chorus gets together and sings, but it's never a full song. It's like this montage of things. The goddesses, though. The goddesses, well, all the Greek gods, I'm not, like, they're not in togas. 
we we placed this. <laughs> we saw Not in Olympus as really psychedelic and kind of a '70s rock. I'm thinking Ziggy Stardust. Ziggy oh, Stardust, yes. a little bit yes. for Zeus. But instead of just the rock and roll of the time, then we layer their verse more like a Hamilton-esque kind of thing going on. So there's beats in the back when they do certain things, especially they're trying to convince Zeus or they're down there trying to cheer up Hava and tell things. Because if you think about it, the epic poems were basically that. And so this, it's it just, it's again, these layers of this beautiful stuff of bringing in different traditions of art and music and science yeah. together and just seeing what happens. So there is music in that way, but it is not a musical. Although the very end ends with a, a song the that song. they all sing together. Mm -hmm. And you talked about this wonderful technological upgrading. So is that Mount Olympus with lights? You use lighting effect with the gods yes, and with goddesses. the gods and goddesses, with people when they appear from the past and out of time and things like that, yes. So there is or is not a set? Is it more abstract and you just adjust? No, no there's a set. Mm -hmm. It's a dive bar. And uh -huh. then there's Mount Olympus on the side, and, and that's it. When the chorus comes in, I'm just going to say this abstractly. The, the sets pretty much fade away due to some special effects, and you're just looking and focusing on the chorus. Then they're back. This is a, a spectacle, and it's... <laughs> it is. That's the word I use. Exactly. <laughs> also, then, when we see Hava, we as an audience member perhaps can identify with her. We're not designing a space probe, but like your students, we're asking, is there something we can do? Is mm -hmm. this motivated, right? Yes, right. Motivation. And what do you do with those memories of things that are maybe not still around? We all have that with people, but now places and things. The only other mortal mortal is the bartender. And one of the early scenes is them talking. And so we don't learn as much about him, but you see two humans in this situation, and he's just trying, like, don't go there, don't go there. And then they both end up remembering things. And one of the things is that, and why it's in a bar, is the lack of water means that mostly people drink vodka. And <laughs> she just wants water for her birthday glass. And he's just like, we've got vodka. And she's like, I know there's water somewhere. Black market water, there's this, there's that. And then one of the themes is that firemen are the true heroes because they sometimes will use their little water ration to help put out a fire. And they've dealt with thirst better. And there's capitalism, right? There's all these ways now to deal with your thirst. Which pill is going to be the best one? You know, thirst is better with vodka is one of the jingles. And I mean, that's what babies get. And then does that just numb them? There's some of those those edges there. But I think it brings up some moments of that and some awareness of that but it's so funny at times and ridiculous because the greek gods it's like a family the family dysfunctional family dynamics are just so much fun to play with and these guys do it really well and then this the music and the craziness and and the scientists coming up with the personalities of these different scientists and walking around and spouting their things and mocking each other and it's really, really funny. And then everybody just keeps trying to drink more vodka. But also sobering in a real way. Right. It sounds like it could get out of hand, maybe, because there are so many threads. It's almost as if you, as a director, Lillis, would need to be a choreographer, too. Yeah, it very much is. There's a rhythm. There's a They'll take you to an edge, and then something else will happen, and then... The more I work with the script, I just see how brilliant it is. And that, you know, the actors are realizing it too. And they're like, oh, this happens here. And then there's this here. And it's, 
influenced some of my choices because there was like maybe five stage directions in the whole thing. They were working live, so they knew what all was going on. This is not a polished script. When it was sent to me, it was a PDF full of typos and inconsistencies. So you realize that it, it was changed as it went along and you kind of go, okay, so this just never got revised up to this. And, you know, little things that are pretty easy to, to come out with. But the heart of it, of what's what she's doing and, and layering him, and then we're going over here and we're going here, but we're still actually building on what was going on over here. And then, yeah, when they all come together and it just... It's so clear in her writing that it really tells me as a director what choices to make and suggests things that really have me excited and I'm just not going to say. Just hearing that description, that sounds like there might be something archaeological in the layering, but also the time frame and... Yeah, that's actually a good way of looking at it. new layer on top, Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. There's a real (laughs) stratigraphy. There is. Yeah, when you're looking at the scientists one after the other, mm-hmm. modifying or completely changing what went before. you got the layers of the different creation stories and mm-hmm. gods and goddesses. And, oh, right. You know, yeah. And then there's Jessica Litwak in the Art Science Lab, and now there's us out here in Wellsboro. Her. She's never heard of us. <laughs> and we are just so enamored of what she did. And, you know, I like to think that she'd be really thrilled with what we're doing. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. But there's always something, and people will catch different things Mm -hmm. based on how they're oriented and Mm -hmm. what their interests are. And the fact that the the actors can bring it. They they care about the smallest details as much as I do. And that matters so much to me. And so they're, they're really thinking through elements of their costume, their props, where they'd be, what they'd be doing. So that element of this collaboration, which is what the Women's Project is all about, it's collaboration. And it's so much fun. I mean, it's terrifying because everybody's <laughs> relying on everybody else. So you just have this huge faith that everybody's mm-hmm. doing the best they can and we're communicating and everybody is. And then, of course, you've got something that you never could have imagined, that you never could have pulled off, you know, one or two people. And that can never be replicated. And the mm-hmm. most important element No matter what your field is, if we're coming to try and do something about climate change, you know, whatever our little niche is about that is, is imagination. And that is what I think this show just celebrates, no matter whether it's the scientists or anybody, Mm -hmm. it's imagination and joining our imaginations, both to imagine what do we want the world to look like, and then to kind of imagine backwards. So we're in... This apocalyptic, we don't say what time, she didn't say what time in the future it is. But instead of just being one of those dystopic things, it just uses that spot to kind of say, okay, this is a reckoning. All these different forces are sort of coalescing to say, is, is there hope? Is there going forward or is there not? And of course, the answer is yes, there is going forward and how and in what ways. We don't have answers. It's not a scientific book with an answer about, you know, the drawdowns and things like that. Mm -hmm. It is very much, though, if you're choosing a track, which track? And Zeus chooses at the end and makes his case for it. And one of the things that I found so important was that it didn't pit certain worldviews against other worldviews Mm -hmm. so much. It's not that, oh, well, this happened over here, so the Hebrew or Judeo-Christian thing is, you know, obviously... The great thing about choosing the Greek gods is 
our audience is not going to take the Greek gods seriously, right? They're going to be interested in them from a literary or historical, cultural perspective. So we're not stepping on any toes there. And I thought that was brilliant. And then acknowledging that there's some people who don't have a god, some people who have a god or gods, and that that relationship is important, as different as they might be. And so it's not ignoring that. So I just, there's so much I admire about this script, as wacky as it is. As wacky as it is. Writer Lillis Mellon-Gignard, director, and Dr. Linda Kennedy of Mansfield University. Producer, speaking about The Moons of Jupiter by playwright Jessica Litwack, to be offered by the Women's Project of Hamilton Gibson Productions in Wellsboro in Tioga County, Friday, April 21st, and Saturday, April 22nd at 7.30 p.m., with a Sunday matinee April 23rd at 2.30 at the Warehouse Theater, 3 Central Avenue in Wellsboro. For more information, on the web, hamiltongibson.org, hamiltongibson.org. The Moons of Jupiter, April 21st and 22nd at 7.30 p.m. or the 23rd at 2.30 at the Warehouse Theater, Central Avenue in Wellsboro, hamiltongibson.org. Tomorrow, though, Saturday, April 15th, from 5 to 6.30 p.m. at the Warehouse Theater, the Hamilton Gibson Women's Project is hosting a special fundraiser titled Exploring Uncharted Terroir, a wine talk and tasting with Suzanne Hunt and Lillis Guignard. And Suzanne Hunt, as we're told by E2.org, has nearly two decades of experience solving problems in energy, agriculture, transportation, and the environment. She's been an associate at the International Institute for Sustainability Analysis and Strategy in Germany and a member of the New York Clean Energy in Agriculture Task Force, the Agriculture and Forestry Advisory Panel to the New York Climate Control Council. She serves on the Advisory Councils of Carbon 180 and the Center for Earth Ethics. She moved from Washington, D.C. to the Finger Lakes region of New York to help run her family's seventh-generation farm and 40-year-old sustainable winery and to help accelerate climate action in her home state. Suzanne has been featured as a pioneer in Science Magazine. A fun aspect of the fundraiser is that the whole event will be held with the place set as a backdrop, an urban dive bar, as we heard, in a water-starved future. And some of the characters, in fact, from Moons of Jupiter, will be stopping by. Not only is Suzanne Hunt an international consultant for clean technologies and sustainable farming, but also a co-owner of Hunt Country Vineyards on Cuca Lake. You'll learn about 
uncharted terroir, Hunt Country Vineyard's new line of wines crafted from hybrid grape varieties that are resilient in the face of an uncertain climate future. Again, the moons of Jupiter the following weekend, April 21st and 22nd at 7.30 p.m. or the 23rd, a matinee on Sunday at 2.30. For more information on the web, hamiltongibson.org. 